0: Today's episode is from history, and it features two Krishna devotees, Madhavacharya and Kanakadas, and also prominently featuring the Udupi Shri Krishna temple. Welcome to Stories from India. This is a podcast that will take you on a journey through the rich mythology, folklore and history of the Indian subcontinent. I am Narad Muni, the celestial storyteller and the original Time Lord. With my ability to travel through space and time, I can bring you fascinating stories from the past, the present and the future. From the epic tales of the Mahabharata, and Ramayan to the folk tales of the Panchatantra, the stories of Akbar people and Tenali Raman. I have a story for every occasion. The purpose of the stories is neither to pass judgment nor to indoctrinate. My goal is only to share these stories with people who may not have heard them before and to make them more entertaining for those who have. One quick note before we begin. You can now listen to this podcast on YouTube, if you like. All 270 plus episodes are on it. The handle is at Podcast. There's also a link in the show notes and on the site sfipodcast.com. Check it out. I will be creating some playlists by category as well. So keep an eye out for that, if that is something you might be interested in. In this episode, we are talking about two huge fans of Vishnu. Or, at any rate, fans of Krishna. Which amounts to the same thing, since Krishna was an avatar of Vishnu. Not to toot my own horn too much, but I am Vishnu's number one fan. And president for life of his fan club. So, you can rest assured that I know a Vishnu fan when I see one, or rather when I see two of them. These fans are Madhvacharya and Kanakadas. Kanakadas was born almost two centuries after Madhvacharya had passed away. And yet, their devotion to Vishnu isn't the only thing that is common to them. The other surprising connection is the Krishna temple, in the city of Udupi, which is located in the state of Karnataka. Let's begin in the 13th century, in Udupi, with Madhvacharya. But this was before he became famous, and his likeness started appearing on posters and t-shirts and chai mugs and such. His fame at the time was limited to his house, his neighbours, his school and such. And yet, the boy Madhav was known to be unusual. You'll get no better sense of it than if I were to read out to you bits from one of his school report cards. His teacher had written Madhav has an intuitive grasp of the concepts of the universe, and he can comfortably debate abstract concepts with his teachers and peers. However, we recommend that he allows the class to focus on and rather than on proving the existence of a divine entity during every single lesson. We also recommend that he tones down his debates during recess. The other children are starting to form philosophical societies on the playground. That probably told you quite a bit. But that were just the beginning. Madhvacharya's abilities weren't just in the intellectual zone. He performed several physical miracles as well. There was the time that Madhav had accompanied his father when they were visiting a nearby rich farmer. Being rich and being a miser often went hand in hand. And in this case, the farmer was no exception. He addressed the boy. All right, laddie. We big boys have to talk shop. So why don't you be a good boy and go run along and play in the banana plantation? If you like, you can even help yourself to a banana. Being a host, and a rich one at that, he should have offered something better. Chai, cookies, cashews... And so on. But this rich man took the easy and cheap way out. The skinny little boy would probably eat two bananas at the most. Maybe four if it was a particularly long discussion. But it wasn't two or four. It was four thousand. Yes, you heard that right. This slender little elementary school boy ate about 10 times his own body weight. Now, if any of you are entomologists, you know, scientists who study insects, you'll probably shrug your shoulders and remark that that was nothing. A polyphemous moth eats 86,000 times its own body weight. And that... I agree, may be true. But what Madhavacharya has got over a polyphemous moth is that he did it in a couple of hours and he topped it off by drinking several dozen pots of milk. Ultimately, it was an effective way for the farmer to learn. All the savings over the years by not being hospitable to his guests He lost them all in that instant. Ultimately, the loss was bearable. The learnings were important. He was more generous to guests after that. But he also made a mental note, never ever to invite anyone from Madhavacharya's family to his farm again. If they had business, he'd go visit them himself. Or... Do it on neutral grounds, like a chai shop where they could split the bill. That wasn't the only time Madhvacharya pulled off a miracle like that. Years later, on a visit to Badrinath, which is a holy pilgrimage site in the state of Uttarakhand, Madhvacharya repeated his ability to gobble down enough food to feed an army. And then too, he did it in a single sitting one of his followers nudged the other and asked if their guru was secretly a python. A suspicion that he doubled down on when Madhavacharya managed to stay immobile and to eat nothing for the following 48 days. Well, that wasn't all either. Madhavacharya did other things like turning tamarind seeds into gold coins complete with the appropriate year and monarch's likeness stamped on those coins. On his trip to Badrinath, Madhvacharya had walked across a river. And by that, I don't mean on a bridge or that he waded in the water. I mean, he was able to literally walk on water. And he didn't even get his feet wet. One evening, when his students needed to read, but there was no oil for the lamps and the moon wasn't out either, Madhvacharya stepped in to help. A modern day boy scout may have started a fire by rubbing sticks together, but Madhvacharya had a much more nifty trick up his sleeve, or rather, in his shoes. Because somehow Madhvacharya was able to cast light from his toenails. And not an incandescent light, which might have gotten uncomfortable, but the much more environmentally friendly LED variety. Well, Madhvacharya did a bunch of things after he got back to Udupi. And that indirectly included starting Udupi cuisine. That may shock you, but no, just hear me out. Madhvacharya established the Krishna Mutt in Udupi, which still does a lot of things for Krishna devotees. The food that was prepared to feed said devotees has evolved into modern day Udupi cuisine. The man left quite a mark not just on Udupi but on the rest of the country. We'll leave it there with his part of the story and fast forward more than two centuries to the second Vishnu fan we are talking about. We are not going too far away. In fact, we are in the same state of Karnataka. Kanakadas was a warrior, a soldier. He was what in Indian army terms might be considered a freestyle and a minded person. The former, meaning he was... Quite a colourful character, and the latter that he was quite clever and intellectual as well. Being freestyle and minded was expected because Kanakadas' real desire was to be a different kind of a soldier. He didn't want to be a soldier of fortune or even just an ordinary soldier. He wanted to be a soldier of love. He wished to be a musician he drew inspiration from the now forgotten composer tchaikovsky because of the way he thought outside the box kanakadas was participating in regular physical battles when he might have much preferred rap battles so far all he had done was to march to someone else's tune specifically those of his commanding officer. When Kanakadas was ordered to scale a wall, he scaled a wall. When he was asked to fight, he fought. When he was asked to risk life and limb, he risked and lost some of his limbs, which landed him in the medic tent. And through it all, his dream persisted that one day, he would write some amazing songs that would go platinum. He might also perform in several overpriced concerts and maybe a movie of one of the concerts just to rake in some extra cash. The idea had taken such a firm root in his mind that it was hard to shake it off. You might consider him a bit of an anti-hero at this stage. But hey, don't count your chickens just yet. You'll soon find that he was going to be singing a different tune soon enough. And that happened when a beggar approached him. Kanakadas's first reaction was surprise. This was an active war zone. How did they let the beggar in there? The beggar seemed to be wearing tattered clothes. And yet, there was something special. About him. He replied to the soldier's question, You called me here, my child. Kanakadas's inclination was to ring the bell and have the nurses escort this beggar out. But something kept gnawing at him. He had called the beggar? Of course he hadn't. He had been thinking about his songs all day. All he had said out loud was a hello to the nurse. And, yes, he had said Jai Shri Krishna as he woke up this morning. That completely clinched it for him. This beggar had to be Krishna himself in disguise. Even though there was no other supporting evidence, Kanakadas was absolutely right. He had definitely gotten lucky. It's not a leap I may have made had I been in Kanakadas's shoes. Hari slash Krishna slash Vishnu slash the beggar replied that yes, he was Hari slash Krishna slash Vishnu slash the beggar. And he could see that Kanakadas was a troubled man. He wanted to offer a way out. So he offered Kanakadas three wishes. This was a transformative moment for the wounded soldier. I don't know if you have heard the Purandardas episode recently, but a very similar situation happened there. A diamond merchant who cared only about money gave it all up and devoted the rest of his life to Vishnu. With Kanakadas, it was a similar story. His first wish was for all his injuries to be healed. Not spiritually transformative, you might say, but physically, certainly. The beggar granted it instantly, which also immediately proved to any unconvinced observers that the beggar was in fact Vishnu. Kanakadas wasn't the least bit surprised when his wounds healed and he was back in perfect shape again. He was ready with his next wish. He wanted Vishnu to appear before him whenever Kanakadas called on him. Some of you might think that's a bit selfish. Wouldn't that be depriving the rest of the universe from Vishnu's attention? Even if it were just during fleeting moments that Kanakadas chose to call on Vishnu. But unlike real life, and unlike the chocolate frog's cards in the Harry Potter universe, Vishnu can actually be everywhere all at once. So this was really not a concern at all. As for the third wish, Karakadas wanted once, right now perhaps, to view Vishnu in his original form. Not as a beggar, or even as just Krishna or Ram or any of the other avatars, he wanted to know what Vishnu really looked like. Kanakadas wasn't the first to receive this vision. Notably, Krishna revealed this to Arjun on the Mahabharata battlefield during the narration of the Bhagavad Gita. Let's just say that Vishnu granted this wish and leave it at that. And to be clear, I'm not simply dismissing it. I just don't think I can do justice to Vishnu's Vishwaroop, his all-encompassing true form, in any format, written, verbal, visual. Let's just say that it has to be experienced to be understood. I have been lucky in this respect, as has Arjun. And now, Kanakadas had just joined the club. The spiritual transformation was complete even before the wishes were granted. Kanakadas had not asked for personal glory or new songwriting abilities. He had only asked for things that he could do to spread knowledge about Vishnu across the country. Kanakadas began his mission. Getting out of the army was easy enough. None of the commanding officers looked at him when making the discharge decision. They only looked at his paperwork, describing the extent of his unhealable injuries. And so, Kanagadas was given his pension, a medal, some flowers, and was politely shown the exit door. Kanagadas gave away the medal and the flowers to some beggars right outside. They couldn't use a medal or flowers other than to sell them in the second-hand market in exchange for a meal. As for his pension, Kanakada spent it all on a tambora. A wise choice given he needed something to make music with. He could sing, but a musical instrument to accompany him would mean more people would pay attention to his singing. He knew exactly where to begin. Udupi. He landed there with no checked baggage or carry on, just his Tambora, which qualified as a personal item on the bullock carts that he hitched a ride on. He had chosen Udupi because this was it. This was the Krishna capital of the country. There was the Krishna Mutt run by disciples of the school of Madhuvacharya. There was a temple with a very famous Krishna idol. If Karakadas wanted to spread new praises and new songs about Krishna, there was no better gathering of Krishna devotees. He decided he would kick things off with a darshan of the Lord himself. When he walked into the Udupi temple complex though, Something happened that may throw some questionable light on his decision to spend all his money on the tambora. Because Kanakadas was denied entry. The security priests, who acted very busy and all-important, didn't even waste time explaining. They simply pointed to a sign that said, Management reserves the right to refuse darshan. And it suddenly became clear to Kanakadas why that was. He looked down at his own clothes. They were just dirty rags. Maybe Kanakadas should have invested at least a couple of rupees on his own appearance. He could have gotten the oak version instead of the neem version of the tambora. And used the rest of the money to get a nice new dhoti. It was too late now. He'd try again in the evening hours when hopefully in the poor light the security priests would not screen him out again. Evening came and Karakadas tried again. But as it happened, the security priests were not there. Unknown to him, they had stepped away for their chai break and they had left the gate unlocked Well, that was practically a sign of welcome. So Kanakadas walked in confidently and started towards the inner chamber where Krishna's idol was located. This was an important moment for Kanakadas. He had heard of this temple and the Krishna idol and he really, really wanted this darshan. Even though he had previously had the much more comprehensive Vishwarup, When it came to visions of Vishnu, he always wanted more. But he didn't get to see the idol. The security priests came back. They saw him on the premises and immediately tackled him to the ground. And because they recognized him from earlier in the day, they now suspected ill intentions on his part. So they beat him up and threw him out. Kanakadas lay on the ground outside the temple. He wasn't upset at the priests. His attention was all on the Krishna idol inside the temple complex. His body hurt from the thrashing, but he walked to the western side of the temple. From here, all he could see was a wall. But on the other side of the wall was the idol at least the back of the idol, because idols in temples faced east. He longed for a darshan of the Krishna idol. He hoped that the wall would just disappear, even briefly, so that he could take one look, just one look at Krishna. And because he was bursting with musical talent, he wrote a song on the spot, describing his feelings. And he performed it right then and there. It was late in the evening, but his singing was melodious, and soon a crowd had gathered. At the conclusion of the last verse, which was an appeal to the Krishna idol to reveal itself, that is exactly what happened. A part of the wall crumbled, and through the resulting hole, everyone could see that the Krishna idol inside was now facing west staring right at Kanakadas. Obviously, there were lots of dropped jaws, lots of gasps and shouts from the crowd. When the head priest arrived, he, at least, recognized divine intervention. It was going against the norm, but he left the idol facing west. And what's more, he had the hole in the wall enlarged. That hole in the wall is still there today. Visitors to the temple to this day view the idol through the whole, by tradition, before they even enter the temple. That's it for this time. A few notes. The window through which the Krishna idol can be seen is called the Kanakana Kana Kindi, named after Kanakadas, of course. Also thankfully, in this day and age we don't have aggressive screening of visitors to the temple. The management at the Mutt learned their lessons and retrained all security priests from then on. There is definitely a tradition in Indian temples of having idols face the east. And that's because that's where the sun rises from. Also check out Purandar Das's story, episode 238, it's linked on the site sfipodcast.com. It has a similar transformative theme as Kanakadas' story. That's it for this time. In the next episode, it's Tenali Raman again. We'll see the court jester from Vijayanagar take on another challenge and come out on top as usual. Thank you all for the comments on social media and on Spotify's QA. I can't directly reply to the questions there, but I'll address them here on the show. Thank you, Ongkar Veer, Hank Reardon, Libby, Aniv, Mamta, and Navya. Jen, I'm really glad you liked the stories. Aniv, love that you and your mom loved the Angad episode. Let me know if you have any suggestions. Kaira, yes, I was a farmer briefly, but just in that episode. And all of that, may have been Maya anyway. And nice catch, I will fix that. I definitely meant that Brahma is the creator and Vishnu is the preserver. Doing episodes twice a week is going to be a bit challenging, especially as I have a full-time job, travelling the universe, managing the Vishnu fan club, hobnobbing with gods and goddesses and so on. I'll also have to research a bit about Jamshedji Tata and I'll try and add it to my backlog. Libby, Akbar people is queued up, so it will come up soonish. Deep enjoy, I hope you liked today's story, though it didn't directly feature Krishna. We are getting back to the Mahabharata soon, so you will get to hear more about him. Navya, I'll try and cover some of Krishna's childhood stories that we haven't already covered before. Thank you as always, Shalu. As it happens, the next story I have lined up, while not a Byonkesh Bakshi or karamchand story, does have Raman do a bit of detection. Let me know what you think after next week's episode. Shweta, yes, I've been meaning to do one on Vivekanand in general. I'll give it a shot. Prasanna, I hope you had a great birthday. And I will work on an Andhra or Telangana folktale as well. Tal, I hope you liked today's episode. Darsh, about your Ravan query? Yes, indeed. If it was an ordinary person, balancing ten heads would lead to a lot of logistical difficulties for most people. For Ravan, though, he had received all kinds of superpowers that allowed him to lift mountains. And one lesser-known skill is his ability to balance his heads so that he wouldn't constantly keep falling over. But now that you mention it, I'm seriously tempted to go back in time, before the Ramayana, to the Lanka palace, and to give Ravan a gentle nudge, purely by accident, of course, to see if he tips over. If you have any other comments or suggestions, or if there are particular stories you'd like to hear, please do let me know by leaving a comment or a review on the site, sfipodcast.com, or reply to the questions on Spotify's Q&A. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook. You can also listen to the show on all podcast apps. And now, you can also do so on YouTube. If you want to send me an email, it's storiesfromindiapodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get notified automatically of new episodes. A big thank you to each and every one of you for your continued support and your feedback. The music is from purpleplanet.com. That's purple-planet.com. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.